I will invite the rest of you to turn to the book of Acts. This is the last time, Lord willing, that I will tell you that, at least in this series. As we turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 28. This is the final chapter in a long version, a long journey. And so now let us give attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Acts chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, God thanked, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans." When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain." 
And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. (coughs) But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And agreeing among themselves and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you (coughs) that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. (coughs) Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by Your Holy Spirit, You would attend our way. Lord, we ask You would be with us, that You would teach us from Your Word, that we might be changed, and that as a result, through us, You might change the world. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it has been some time now that we have been in the book of Acts. For those of you who are keeping score, we are in our 15th month in the book of Acts. This is our 53rd sermon. And it is a large and expansive book. We have been going rather quickly. I noticed just looking at some other preachers, for example, John MacArthur, who some of you may know, preached 103 sermons on Acts. So, we got through it in roughly half the time. But when you take a long book like Acts, 28 chapters, with so many various stories, Acts can almost be broken down into two parts. One is the story of Peter and his mission, and the second is the story of Paul and his. One of the things that can happen is we lose sight of the big picture of the book. Why did Luke write this book? Why did he write his second volume? This morning we have an opportunity as we look at chapter 28 to see the greater purpose of Acts. To see the theme of Acts in the midst and through all of these stories, all of these texts that we have been looking at. 
You see, Luke's purpose here in the book of Acts is to show to us that the kingdom of God is expanding. That God is victorious in laying the foundation of His kingdom. And that God is recreating the world. This is the beginning of the story of the church. It is a story that we do not just observe. It is a story, Christian, that we live right now. As we see the kingdom built around us. As we participate in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things from this text that are also three themes that run throughout the book of Acts. The first is that God keeps His promises. This is something that we need to remember every day, every hour. God keeps His promises. And then secondly, we will see that God builds His kingdom. This is a work that the Lord does, and the kingdom is His, not ours. <coughs> Thirdly and finally, we will see that God's means is His Word. That God builds His kingdom, and the primary means of the growth of the kingdom of God is the Word of God. God keeps His promises, God builds His kingdom, and God keeps, excuse me, God's means is His Word. Well, let's begin then by looking at the beginning of chapter 28 to the end of chapter 27. You will recall that the original Bible texts were not books with pages. They did not have chapters with big numbers in the front of them. They were written consecutively on a scroll that you would unroll. With no space, not only for chapters, but even often for words. Letters run together. This is important because... Chapter 28 begins with an echo of chapter 27. It's an intentional repeat. God keeps His promises because, first of all, God does not forget. Do you have experience with forgetfulness? Do you have experience with others' forgetfulness? It has gotten so for me that I have gotten into a habit, especially on a busy Sunday when someone asks me something or wants to give me something, my immediate response is, please send me an email. That way I'll have a record of it and I'll remember because I forget. I promise my children things and then I forget and the time goes by. I promise my wife things and then I forget and the time goes by. I say to myself I will do things, but I forget. Maybe you have experienced this as well. And you think, you see, sometimes I think we take that human characteristic and we place it upon God. We think that God forgets who we are. That God forgets about our problems. How can God be concerned about my underemployment when there are wars going on? When there are Christians being persecuted? When there are churches to be planted? We think God can easily forget about us. We can slide through the cracks. But this passage here reminds us of this. Notice how it begins. After we were brought safely through. Now I want you to look up one verse to verse 44 and so, of chapter 27. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Why does Luke do this? Why does he repeat safely twice so close to one another? 
Remember, there's no big chapter 28 number between these verses in your original Bible. (coughs) What is going on here? I think that there is a bit of an excitement in Luke. Luke is excited that they have finally arrived safe. That the end is in sight. That all of the build-up is about to come to a conclusion. Finally, they're almost at Rome. They've gone through everything. Unjust accusations. Flight by night on horseback. From shore to shore. From shipwreck to land. And now we're safe. We're almost there. God has taken care of them. We see this even in the people that come up and speak to them. They come into Malta. Now imagine this in your mind's eye. You have been tossed by the sea for two weeks. You've barely been able to keep down any food. You're probably battered by the wind and the sun. And then to top it all off, your ship is wrecked. And then you float on a plank of wood or swim for your life to the seashore. And you finally get there. You claw up on the beach. And this is not like a movie. You see, in the movie... In Robinson Crusoe's movie, what would happen is you would get up and the sun would be shining and you would be dried off and you'd find a coconut and you would be ready to eat. But here you get up on the beach and guess what happens? In the 45 degree weather, that's what it would be like here in Malta, it begins to rain. Now imagine how discouraged you would be. You've just survived and now rain comes on you. How miserable can it get? But the Lord is aware of the needs of Paul and the others because he brings unbelievers, pagans we would say, from Malta to come up to them and to show kindness. And Luke puts it in a very understated way. In verse 2 we see, our translation says, they showed us unusual kindness. Luke actually says, no ordinary kindness. They came and they lit a fire. Now, get into the story here. This is not a little Boy Scout, couple of twigs, five people huddled around at fire. This is 276 strapping men soaked from a sea journey kind of fire. This is a huge bonfire. They have come to show hospitality and to help these men. But you see, behind these natives is God. Because you see, God has promised Paul that he would bring him to Rome in Acts 23. And because of that, Paul has been preserved from everything that is before him. He's even preserved now from a snake bite. Now, you can imagine, as we read through Acts, Paul just amazes me. Doesn't he amaze you? Here is a prisoner who takes charge of the ship, basically, to make them safe. He's thrown up on the seashore. He's been shipwrecked several times, and now again, and he comes up, and he spends his time gathering firewood. You would think, if anybody would have a reason to sit and take a rest, a break, it would be Paul. But he's out working, and he's gathering up sticks, and he gathers up a cold snake that he mistakes for a stick. And the snake grabs onto his hand and bites him. 
And everyone is sure that now Paul is done for. You know, if the sea didn't get him, now the snake is going to get him. He must have done something wrong. But you see, God preserves him. Not because Paul is special. Not because Paul is a Bible person and you are not. God preserved Paul because God was not done with Paul. There's a famous quote by the Christian officer Stonewall Jackson. He was criticized for being reckless in battle, for riding up to the front. Eventually, his activity in battle would cost him his life. And he was told to stay toward the rear, and he said to his captain, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live. And then all would be equally brave. The great preacher George Whitfield put it in a similar way. He said, we are all immortal until our work for the Lord is done. Do you fear death, Christian? You shouldn't. The very seconds of your life are numbered by the Lord. Until He is done with you, until you have done all of the good works that He has prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, you are as safe as you could be in a bed, in a padded room, in a bomb shelter. You are immortal until your work is done. But this does not mean that we are promised safety. We should not take this from Paul and live lives that are reckless and foolish. No. It is God who is in control. Now, the interesting thing is is that these natives see this and they oversimplify providence. First, Paul must be a murderer because a snake has bit him. And then when the snake doesn't kill him, well, I guess he must be a god. There's a turnabout as fair play. And again, this is also, I think, how we are tempted to view the world. Not through the lens of God's promise, but through the lens of circumstances. Bad things are happening to us. Then God must be mad at us. We must have done something wrong. We must not have enough faith. Oh, things are good. God must be blessing us. We must be doing the right things. Without looking to the providence of God. There's an illustration of this in John chapter 9, how the man who was born blind from birth, and everyone was convinced that he had done something wrong. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't have anything to do with him. It has everything to do with God and how God will be glorified. We don't see it here, but Paul will get to Rome. Everything will seem to be fine. But in years to come, the church there will abandon him. He'll be freed and then tossed back into prison and he'll eventually be killed. You see, it is about God and His promises, not about the circumstances. God keeps His promise to bring Paul to Rome. And then, God builds His kingdom. This phrase here, the kingdom of God, appears several times in this passage. It occurs throughout the New Testament. And so the question then we have is, what does it mean? What is the kingdom of God? Well, first, God builds His kingdom in us individually. In Paul, and in you, 
and in me. And the main way in which God builds His kingdom through us is through suffering. If we think about it, this is the story of the apostles. Every apostle meets an untimely death. The only one who lives to a ripe old age, John, gets the great blessing of imprisonment and persecution. Paul is beheaded. Peter is crucified upside down. Matthew is martyred. James is killed. We see over and over again the story of the church. The story of Christians is to suffer. Now, why is this? Well, I think first we need to realize that it is the nature of the world that we are in. Suffering is common to all because sin is in the world, sickness is in the world, death is in the world. People get sick. People die. People are hungry. This is the nature of a sin-ravaged world. We see that even here in Malta. Publius' father... Publius is the wealthiest man on all of Malta. He is the person in charge. Rome has placed him. He is the first man. He has a house big enough to host 276 people. But he can't take care of his father. He doesn't have power over sickness. And so Paul comes... And shows a blessing, shows the grace of the gospel in a vignette here to this man. He heals him. And you see the response because suffering and sickness is so common here on Malta that they begin to flock to Paul, just like every other place. Do you ever wonder why, whenever Jesus healed someone, crowds came out of the woodwork? It's because everyone has suffering. It's one of the costs of sin. It's also why it is such great folly to associate Christianity, faith in Christ, with health and wealth. Christians are not given a pass on suffering. And those who preach and teach that are just setting people up to be disappointed and to be disappointed in God. I'm not here to tell you today that you will have the best life you could ever have if you have Jesus. I will not promise you a new car. I will not promise you a bigger house. I will not promise you more children, better grades. But with Jesus, you get Christ. You get all of the promises of God in Jesus are yea and amen. That is enough. We also sometimes need a bit of a Mid-course correction. Some of you have GPSs in your car. Some of you, perhaps like me, know where you're going, or, or you don't know where you're going, but your wife is sitting next to you and she knows where she's going. And the GPS is, sure, you are supposed to turn here. And your wife says, no, don't do that. Just go straight. Really? Okay. And then, for about the next half a mile, you get, please make a U-turn as soon as possible. Please turn here and get back on that road that I told you to go to before. Sometimes I think we're going to, they're going to add a nagging voice to the GPS to really get you across. And 
The person sitting next to you is patiently saying, no, no, go right ahead. I know what I'm doing. Right? The GPS is constantly trying to correct your course. Well, that's what God needs to do to us at times. Except for God, unlike a GPS, is infallible. You see, sometimes we need a course correction. We are headed off in a path of great suffering. We are headed off in a path of destruction of our families, our souls, and God sends suffering into our lives to bring us back on course. That's the good part of suffering. I have friends who live in Ohio. Some of you may have seen the prayer request that came out. This is a wonderful story. They were young people in our church. We watched them grow up, two families, and eventually they got married, husband and wife. And the wife went into labor six weeks early. And she had to have an emergency C-section. And this is dangerous. And, and perhaps people are sitting there wondering, why would this happen? Why couldn't God allow this child to go to term? But it was in the midst of this emergency C-section that the doctors noticed a problem with her intestines. And they had to perform emergency surgery to save her life. Sometimes God brings sadness and brokenness into our life to bring us back on the course in which He would have us. Sometimes we need correction from God. A third thing that suffering brings to us is oftentimes we simply need to be reminded that we must exercise faith in Jesus. We need to live out our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul could have been angry about this snake. He could have sat down, stomped the ground and said, what in the world is going on here? Why did God send this snake to bite me after all of this? But you see, Paul had learned through all of his suffering something that he will write in just months to come here from this text. He'll write these words in Philippians 4.11. That in whatsoever circumstances I am, I have learned to be content. You see, suffering was the crucible that God used to grow the faith of even one such as Paul in his Savior. Can you walk today where Jesus leads? If Jesus is leading you into pain and suffering, will you walk with Him? Like a child, will you grip His hand tightly, even if it's dark? Trusting in Him that He knows the way, that He will keep you safe, that He will bring you through to Himself. This is oftentimes how God grows His kingdom in us. He also grows His kingdom in us in a way in which we enjoy more, and that is through encouragement. Look at Paul here in verse 14. There, when they get to Puteoli, they found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius. And three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Paul finally arrives here. And you can, you can see the excitement that Luke has. And he's encouraged by the church. Seven days he spends with the church. He's finally where he wanted to be. And the church comes all the way out to meet him. 
And you can imagine, they're telling stories and talking about conversions and how people are growing and how children are growing up in the church and how God, through the Gospel of His Son, is changing the world around them. And Paul just takes a moment. Perhaps you've done this as well. I can imagine in my mind's eye, they're talking and Paul gets quiet for a minute and maybe he looks up wistfully or closes his eyes. And he thanks the Lord for all that he has done with him. It's been a whirlwind of a journey for Paul, hasn't it? From murderer to missionary. From Jerusalem to Rome. All that God has done in Paul's life has been building up the kingdom of God in Paul and Paul cannot contain his thankfulness. It produces thankfulness in the Christian. Are you a thankful person? You know, there's a, there's a saying that asks whether you are a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person. The Christian should be neither. The Christian should be thankful for everything that God gives to him. That is our posture. That the Lord is in charge of our lives. That the Lord is the one who has brought circumstances into our lives. And this thankfulness of the Apostle Paul produces great confidence. Our text says that Paul took courage. But another way to say this is that Paul received confidence. He got confidence. He was courageous. He was encouraged. He was ready to go and conquer the world. I can appreciate this. Maybe you have experiences like this, but for me, it is when we are at General Assembly. And when a thousand or more men are singing a great hymn of the faith while a huge organ is belting out the sound. And at the end of it, I feel like I am ready to storm the gates of hell themselves. Do you get that kind of encouragement from being around other believers? From seeing God at work in your life? Take courage, Christian. God is building up His kingdom in you. But not just in individuals, but also all around us. Because you can see the freight train of Acts going faster and faster. Paul is getting more and more excited. Luke is describing this in a quicker pace. The positive pace is picking up. Look here at verse 13. You can almost feel the excitement. We were going, and, and, and then there was a fast wind, and it got us two days only, and we got there. And then the people came down, and we saw them, and then we were, we were at Rome. Now, do you notice something here? It causes all sorts of mundane commentators' grief. Look at verse 14. And so we came to Rome. And now look at verse 16. And when we came into Rome. And I could spend 20 minutes boring you about how this is a great difficulty of the text and how you can't come to Rome twice and Luke obviously is inaccurate or someone has amended the text. But I think there's a more simple explanation. It's the way your children act when you arrive at a place of a trip. You've done it. You're driving to San Antonio to go to SeaWorld. And you go and you don't wait till you get to SeaWorld. You go and you see the first sign that says San Antonio. We're here! 
We're excited. Luke can't contain himself. We're finally at Rome. Do you see this? All around him are signs that God is at work. The kingdom is already here. There are churches here at Rome. How did they get here? If you have time later, turn to Acts. Chapter 2, verse 10. You remember Pentecost? Do you remember all of the languages? Do you remember all of the people? Do you know who the last people are who are listed? There were some visitors from Rome. God is already at work here. And Luke sees it. The kingdom is sprouting up everywhere around him. It cannot be stopped. God is also at work in history. He's not just at work on the pages of a book. God is building His kingdom in history. Paul comes here and he is preaching the kingdom of God. Look at that at verse 23. He is testifying to the kingdom of God. And again in verse 31, he goes two years proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is what God is doing Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's the same thing he did in Corinth in chapter 19. It's the same thing he did in Antioch in chapter 14. It's the same thing that Philip did in Samaria in chapter 8. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because if we go way back to the very beginning of Acts, to chapter 1, verse 3, to see what Luke is describing and what is going on. Jesus appeared to His disciples. And for 40 days He spoke to them about, guess what? The kingdom of God. God is at work building His kingdom from then until now. Because this is God's purpose. So often we get confused. We are so grateful and thankful for what God has done for us that we think we are the focus. Whether it is us individually and the forgiveness of our sins or our church or even the church at large. But the purpose of God, the main focus of God is not you and me. We are a gracious and blessed byproduct. The purpose of God is re-establishing His reign over His creation. Redeeming a people for Himself who will sing His praises forever. That is God's purpose. And you see, that's Luke's purpose too here in this book. Do you notice how Acts ends? It's very odd. We don't get the end of the story, do we? What happens to Paul? What about the appeal before Caesar? Didn't Paul get executed? What about the church at Rome? What about the trip to Spain? But you see, Luke isn't really interested in that as an ending. Because that kind of an ending focuses us on Paul. Luke wants us focused on the Lord and on His kingdom. What's the focus of your story? Let me challenge you here this morning. When you testify to the work of God, are there a lot of eyes in them? I was this way. And then I believed in Jesus. And I found my life was changed. And now I can do this. And now I can do that. 
You see, in Paul's life, there were a lot of but God. I challenge you here this morning, as you tell your story, let your story be a story of God's grace, of God's work, of God's kingdom. How does this kingdom grow? How is it built? How can we apply this in our lives? Well, thirdly and finally, we see that God's means of building His kingdom is His Word. Do you notice what's happening here in chapter 28? Same story. Same tune. Paul gets here, and what does he do? He gathers up the Jews again. To do what? Tell them about Jesus. It's the same gospel that is preached. Look at verse 23. He's trying to convince them about Jesus. But what I also want you to see is he uses the same means. Look at the verbs. He expounds to them from morning till evening. This is not the first occasion where Paul has preached all day long. He expounds to them. He explains to them. He gives careful elaboration about what the Gospel is and who Jesus is. That reminds us that there is an intellectual element to the Gospel. It must be understood. We must study it. We must work on giving it to others. But look at what else he does. He testifies to the kingdom of God. There's not just an intellectual element, there is a personal element. Paul is standing and raising his hand in an oath and saying, this is what Jesus has done. Look at my life. It's testimony. The gospel is not abstract. It's not something out there. The gospel is something that changes lives. The third thing that he does is he begins to, he tries to convince or to persuade them who Jesus is. There is an emotional element to the gospel as well. It's not merely a theory or a philosophy. It must be very real to us. The gospel must grip us. The word of God must have such a hold on us that we cannot live without it. Now notice what is not found here or in the two years following. Not one miracle. Just simple preaching, teaching, expounding. Paul is at work in the place where he is supposed to be at the end of the journey, the most important place on the face of the earth now. Rome at this time is Washington, D.C., New York City, and L.A. all rolled up into one. And all he does is bring the Word of God. There's a lesson there for us. It's the same content, too. He's preaching Jesus. It's what Peter did in Acts chapter 2. And he's preaching Jesus from Moses and the prophets. Now, this ending here should remind you of another ending. Of Luke, volume 1. You remember in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was with the two, what did he do? He taught them about himself from where? Beginning at Moses and the prophets. This is what Jesus did. This is what Paul did. This is what we must do. 
to bring the Word of God to a world that needs it. And the response is what it always is. It is varied. Some believe, some reject it. This is what happened in Jerusalem, isn't it? It's what happened in Samaria. Philip came and built up this church, but there was still Simon the sorcerer. It's what happened in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, the great missionaries, spoke, and some believed, but others disbelieved. It's what happened in Corinth. It's what happened in Ephesus. It's what happens here. It is what you should expect to happen. The results are left to God. But one thing that you should be certain of from the end of this book. You see what Paul does for two years at his own expense. He proclaims the kingdom of God and teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The very last word of this book is about the gospel. The very last word of this book is unhindered, unchained, unstoppable. That's the story of the church being built. The last word of the church being built, of the kingdom growing, of the gospel going forward, is unstoppable. In spite of everything that we have seen, Jewish rebellion, Roman legal systems, prison stays, earthquakes, shipwrecks, jealousy, racism, greed, in spite of all of this, things that if we look around, we will see as well. The gospel cannot be stopped. Luke tells you today, Christian, in spite of anything around you, the gospel will not ever be stopped. The kingdom of God goes forward. The book of Acts is a lesson to us that we are to suit up for battle. We are to grab the sword of God, the word of God, and to go forth proclaiming Jesus as the hope of all people. Let's pray.